1: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Ouch. That had to hurt. It was the third debate of the 1992 presidential election, and Governor Bill Clinton of Arkansas was following his plan outlined. At debate prep, jab at the president, attack his record on the economy, hoping for that opening for one of his big, ready-to-go rehearsed lines in the debate. It worked in the first two debates of that year, but this last debate was coming off a vice presidential debate between Al Gore and Dan Quayle, where running mate Al Gore hadn't been as aggressive as Clinton or the campaign would have hoped. Clinton as a front runner, was bearing more criticism. And even the debate prep felt a little lackluster going through the motion after two media proclaimed debate wins by the Democratic candidate for the presidency of the United States. Still, he stuck to his message, economics. The middle class is suffering, he opined. Mr. Bush vetoed a tax on the wealthy, he asserted. He asked Congress to spend more than they wanted to spend. As President Bush spoke it was clear he intended to get at Clinton. I'm going to start talking about his record. He's been talking about mine for nine months. Jim Lehrer asked the first question in the debate, this third debate of 1992, to Governor Clinton. Can we believe you? Putting the challenger on defense. And to pile on to all of this, the third party candidate now in the race, Ross Perot, called Clinton's experience as a governor of Arkansas irrelevant running a small grocery store, and saying you can run the Walmart. That kind of threw Clinton off. His strategy didn't allow for a counterattack on Perot. Too dangerous. Keep going after Bush. Yet he had to answer. I don't think it's irrelevant at all. He continued to scrap, going after Bush. Mr. Bush said he'd put Jim Baker in charge of economic policy if he was reelected. I'll put myself in charge of economic policy. And then the older president retorted to his younger challenger. Yes, that's what we are all afraid of. With that zinger, the POTUS made his opponent look like a small person. The surprising point about Bush's retort is it was no focus group tested line. It was not prepared. It was just George Herbert Walker Bush being George Herbert Walker Bush off the cuff. The way he spoke. It could work sometimes. It could also tank, as when he said out on the campaign trail that there was no recession, and saying it on a golf course probably wasn't advisable, or when he called Clinton and Gore a bunch of bozos and incurred a big backlash. This time, though, his off-the-cuff talk had the zing. For Clinton-Gore campaign manager James Carville, he knew exactly what was going on. Last of three debates, Clinton aced the first two. The Perot also attracted support. But Bush lost both of them, especially the second town hall debate, where President Bush was seen glancing at his watch. He wanted to get out of there. Now, in the third debate, Carville knew Bush had expectations on his side now. As he was losing in the polls, he was bolder on attacking Clinton on the trust issue. Carville felt Bush always played the expectation game like a pro. You don't expect anything out of him, and then he sneaks up and whips you. It's hard to win three debates in a row, though candidates have. Clinton's performance was judged a win, but weaker than the first two debates. Perot, if anyone, came out shining in that last one. If sports can be used as an analogy to politics, as it so often is, in the East Lansing-Michigan debate, Clinton failed to take his opponent out of the game, win so big in the debate that there would be no question about the election, and that would cause his staff and supporters a lot of agita. He'd fuel discussion in the Washington, D.C. chattering crowd that maybe, maybe President Bush was inching in a good direction. Indeed, in the final two weeks of a campaign that would enter the legends, 1992, a third party candidate with serious appeal, an incumbent president. On the ropes with two challengers. A Democratic challenger with personal issues that almost took him out of contention, yet came back, got the nomination, and got the lead. Indeed, a spectacular convention. 17-point lead coming out of the polls in July. And then, crazy headlines. Man on the Moon. Two billion hamburgers served and a Democrat leading in Orange County, California, read the headline in one of the shopper papers in the county known as one of the strongest Reagan Republican bastions in the country. Key Bush fundraisers, the Eagles of 1988, had shut their wallets and some had even defected to the Democratic camp. Clinton appeared with John Scully of Apple and Steve Ballmer of Microsoft and other CEOs and assailed the president with a lack of vision. Now in October... What had happened? Polls were showing 39, 32, 20, two weeks to go. From Clinton's convention in July all the way to September, he maintained double-digit lead, 58% to 37%. Now in October, in the final two weeks, one poll was shown at 39, 32, 39% for Clinton, 32% for Bush, 20% Perot, with two weeks to go. Ha-ha, thought Mary Madeline in the last weeks as a Washington Post poll showed the gain. The Clintonistas were squealing like pigs. She wasn't far off. In Little Rock, her future husband, James Carville, was grabbing the pollster Stan Greenberg, going over the numbers night after night, trying to make sense, comparing the campaign's own internals to the media polls, pointing out which one used registered votes, which one used likely voters, how the state polls looked. He was ballsy, Carville said, of pollster Stan Greenberg telling me not to panic when we were panicking. It felt a little better in Bush-Quail 92, as they now did everything they could do to spin the closer results, the loss of lead. Bush could now stop talking about himself, his own presidency, and in these last few weeks, focus on taxes, on trust, the Arkansas record of his opponent. The mysterious trip he took to Moscow as a youth, a press release that went out called, Back in the USSR Got a Few Giggles. Ross Perot as we commonly know, handed the election to Clinton. I'll discuss that contention in a bit, because it is part of legend. But what was clear in the last two weeks is that the Clinton campaign felt the opposite. If Perot was hurting Bush when he first entered the race and then quit, as he re-entered the race, Perot was reaching the level where he was pulling from Clinton significantly. As one media report said, if George Bush wins re-election, he can thank a tough-talking Texan who hates him. As the talk continued, as Mary Madeline and others told reporters that they had the mo, as Barbara Bush said her husband was within a point and would win, something changed inside the campaign. The pollster known as Mr. Doom and Mr. Gloom around the Bush-Quail campaign, Fred Steeper, now had a smile. The pollster that previously had chided the president for not being empathetic enough with the American people suffering in the 1991 recession. Now, he told his bosses a different story. Clinton was losing a point of his lead every day. And he did something else. He had crunched together all of the polls, looked at the averages of both internals and media polls, and computed that on Tuesday night, election night, 1992, the president and Bill Clinton would be tied if present trends continue at 39.39. The rest for Perot. I knew it, President Bush said, slamming the phone down when he heard the results in the Oval Office. Bush never wavered in the belief that he'd get a second term, at least not till the last few days. In fact, he scolded his staff more than a few times for being too gloomy. And indeed, they deserved a little scolding because they were. Campaign meetings were punctuated with comments like, Kansas and Mississippi are up for grabs against a Democrat for God's sake? James Baker, who had helped run the 1988 campaign, referenced that he knew how they had made the Caucus people feel now in 1988. Bob Teeter had to tell the staff, cut out the Goldwater talk. No shortage of memos was sent to the president asking him to acknowledge the recession more, to sympathize with the people more, to show more empathy. Fred Steeper earned his reputation as Mr. Doom and Gloom in the campaign with one memo where he said, Mr. President, 60% of the people want you gone. Too much attention on foreign affairs, not enough on domestic. With two official recessions since the nineteen ninety one. It's worthwhile to look back at the history and try to understand it a bit. Delay the scene of 1990 to 1991, that recession. Like most, economists differ on what caused it. The 1987 stock market crash and some kind of after effect? Real estate, particularly investment real estate affected by taxes of the 1986 tax reform. Energy prices as Iraq invaded Kuwait and made things unstable. Too much go-go on credit in the 1980s. And now time to pay the piper in the 90s? Whatever the cause, there were a couple of noticeable results. Unemployment that hit white-collar workers harder than it had in the last recessions of 79, 80, and 82. A sense that the jobs were not temporarily lost and would come back, but lost completely as companies restructured and brought in machines or outsourced jobs. A recession mixed with a trade imbalance, a sense that America was slipping. Bush felt it was just a blip. I'm not sure it is a recession, he told a reporter. He made several such statements, all of which got a negative reaction, chides from his staff, and eroded his popularity. And so, a president who had 60 plus percent after a successful Gulf War in 1991, now in 92, was polling as low as 37 percent. With Perot, even leading both candidates, the Democrat and the Republican, in April of 1992, after announcing on a cable TV program. Yes, more than any election prior, 1992 was run on cable, the thing we're used to now, the 24-hour news cycle we expect was born, partially as a result of the eyes-wide-open coverage of the Gulf War on CNN. The election even confounded the academics. Alan Lichtman... And Ken DeSell. They had developed a system. Based on earthquake prediction loosely, with certain keys that could predict presidential elections based on all the presidential elections that occurred before. It's a very interesting and useful system. If a party loses so many keys, they lose the White House. And it asks certain questions like Did the incumbent party have a major foreign policy success? Did the incumbent party lose more seats than it had before the last presidential election? Is the incumbent running? Is the challenger a charismatic person? Was there a major Policy change in the administration? These are all questions which have a major threshold. So when we say major policy change, it's supposed to be on the level of Medicare or Social Security. They should be easy to answer, but they can be a little subjective at times. By the way, Mr. Lickman predicted an Obama win. Now, in 1984 and in 1988, Lickman and DeSalle had published in Washingtonian magazine early in the election year a prediction of who would win. This year, the two Authors split. One of the questions, one of the questions in Lichtman's system is, is the economy in recession? And therein lied the difficulty to answer. Was the '92 economy in recession? After all, GDP growth was up to four percent. Something that, if it occurred now, we would all be quite happy about. In September, Lichtman, looking at economic evidence as well as polling on how Americans perceived the economy. Lickman made a call and scored against the incumbent and for Clinton. There's plenty of other models. One of them was Ray Fair's, a Yale professor, which is based all on the pocketbook theory that voters vote the pocketbook and it's all about economics. Interest rates, inflation, you know, inflation over four years, the number of quarters where the GDP was up versus down in a presidency, things like that. His economic model predicted a win for President Bush. Incidentally, it also recently predicted a win for Mitt Romney, and backwards in time would have predicted a win for Vice President Nixon. So it's not perfect, but it has called the majority of elections. These academics, though, meant little to either campaign. For Camp Clinton, something was going wrong now. Campaigns did matter. This one was going south. They loved to think it was all Bush quail hype out there, Mary Madeline and Barbara Bush spinning things. But it wasn't with the numbers they were getting. I am absolutely sick, George Stephanopoulos was saying within the camp when he saw the most recent polls. Jim Carville got the staff together. This campaign is in denial and we need to get out of it now. Indeed, not only was quantitative data alarming for Camp Clinton, but so were the focus groups. Some of the things that they started hearing about their candidate Clinton when they tried to talk about Bush, they were getting back Oh, he's a polished BSer. Oh, he's wishy washy. Oh, I wish he'd say something real. He ran Arkansas. Big deal. This was the reaction they were getting from some of the focus groups in crucial counties about their man Clinton. Yes, focus groups were so important in 1992. It was kind of, in a way, a revolutionary election. But one of the interesting things about that time, if you typed in www. Into a computer, you'd get nothing more than the Microsoft spell checker informing you that you had made a typo. There was no web. There were no blogs. You spun reporters using a telephone. But that being said, there were some exciting developments in 1992's campaign methodology and technology. Candidates were on talk shows. The Clinton campaign was offering satellite TV. So it allowed campaigns to shoot good video of their candidates shaking hands all over the country to the networks to use as background. For the constant news cycle that cable needed, they had to make that deal and get video from the candidates. They couldn't send crews everywhere. And one innovation in campaigning that might have saved the candidate, under the stress of attacks on him personally. Clinton exploded in a press conference. Every time I hear President Bush talk about character, the very idea that the word would come out of his mouth after what he's done to this country is a travesty. Little Rock was shocked by this. This was not part of the message. Way off. The message was Bush, his record, the economy. Now that Clinton brought up character, took the bait, the issue could be raised in the campaign by the media. The push campaign was ecstatic. Nothing like getting the other guy on your turf, Mary Madeline said about Clinton's tantrum later. The campaign now was about getting Clinton's negatives up, even if the president wasn't rising in his positive poll rate. Clinton blowing off steam live on TV? Great for their guy. And here's where new development came in. The candidate's cellular phone. Not as slick as the ones you have today, but enough to get to the man to reach the candidate with a friendly reminder from the Little Rock war room to stay on message. Well, that didn't mean the man couldn't argue back. Clinton felt it was against every instinct he had to keep talking about Bush and the economy when he was under personal attack. This is against everything I know. This is how I lost in Arkansas. No, the Little Rock team said, stay on the economy. Keep it on Bush. I'll tell you, he is eviscerating me. Stephanopoulos, Pagala, Carville all tried to calm the man down. Eventually, he said, I'm going to hand the phone over. Handed the phone to his aide. Didn't want to talk anymore, but eventually he cooled down. That night, on Larry King, he was back to message, back to the economy. A good little candidate.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
0: And so, as a campaign that had been 58-37, that had seen double-digit leads, now we're seeing leads of just 7, 6, 5 percentage points. This is now where one of the first mysteries about 1992 occur. On October 30, eve of the election, the president appeared to be surging, at least his camp would convince you of that as Clinton may have had his lead stolen by the president of Perot. Lawrence Walsh, the Iran-Contra investigator, produced an indictment of Casper Weinberger, linking Iran-Contra to President Bush in the statement, this days before the election. Mary Madeline felt, that did it. He sucker-punched us, she said, and stopped us cold. Bush aide Charlie Black said, when the indictment came down, he circled the date on a piece of paper, October thirtieth, 1992. Write it down, Black said that's when we lost. Carville disagreed. Commenting after the election, he said, Sure, Hurt Bush helped us, just like many things, but you don't make news in the last weekend anyway. The open question is what would have happened without that possibly momentum-stopping Iran-Contra indictment. We talked about new technologies in elections. Well, in the last final days of 1992, Americans were treated to a sight they had not seen in some time, a candidate looking right into the camera and pitching himself for the presidency, and of all things, an infomercial, the same medium that would pitch Ginzu knives or pasta makers. This was Perot, and in a last-ditch effort to win the presidency, or at least up his third-party vote and make a statement, perhaps make a run in the 1996 elections, he made a pitch, directly attacking both candidates now, not just President Bush, but saying if Clinton was elected, we'd all be plucking chickens for a living. It leads us to our next mystery of 1992, and it's one of the big questions about 1992. Did Perot elect Clinton? Did he hand the election from Bush to Clinton by attacking Bush? Certainly it's a belief of uh, former Vice President Dan Quayle, commentator Rush Limbaugh, who said that Perot engaged in a kamikaze campaign against Bush. We have to take this one on, because it's not only important to understand history and to understand elections, but if we don't consider then it's difficult to use the 1992 election as a guide for any other election. It's the joker in the deck, if you will, then, that we can only bring out when there's a serious third party. Then we can compare 92 to other elections. Otherwise, you've got to leave it alone. Well, I don't think that 1992 should be used that way. I think it can be used compared to other elections, but we need to take on Mr. Perot and, if possible, isolate the impact and subtract it out. So, did Perot elect Clinton? Okay, well, the first thing to consider is that for three months of 1992, it was like any other election. It was a two-man race, right? Russ Perot ran initially, put his head into the ring, and then in July, he backed out. Democratic campaign happened, Republican campaign happened, whole month of September happened, and then, after considering uh, petitions that he received and visiting delegations from both parties... Mr. Perot entered the race again in October towards the end. So, we do have evidence from the time when it was a two-man race, and during that entire time, not a single poster had George H.W. Bush in the lead. In fact, for most of it, Clinton maintained a double-digit lead. That lasted even after the Republican convention. The Houston 1992 convention bounce did tighten things up a bit, but it didn't last. CBS poll had... A 13% Clinton lead right before Perot hopped in. Now, Perot tightened the race up a bit with his debate performances, antics, and just giving people a third choice. But evidenced by the crisis in the Clinton campaign of the final days of 92, he tightened it up for President Bush. Let's look at the vote totals. Perot earned 19%. Bush, 37%. Clinton earned 43%. Now, of course, if you add together Perot and Bush's totals, it's 56%. And so, if every one of Perot's voters go to Bush, this is critical, they all show up, Bush wins the election. Now... In looking at that, you might compare it to, say, a 1912 election where you had Taft and Roosevelt. You had two Republican candidates. One had lost in the primary, Roosevelt, and then, bitter about that result, started his own third party and split the Republican vote. Wilson wins. This election's a little different. Perot was not a Republican. Now, He was a businessman, Republicans like businessmen, You can make all kinds of arguments, but he was running clearly as an anti-Bush candidate. Voters voting for him were voting not to keep the president in office. He appealed to anti-incumbent voters. It is highly unlikely that George H.W. Bush was going to get all of Perot's voters. Now, wait a second, you might say George Bush did not need all of Perot's voters, just some of them. Even if he got in the 1992 election sixty percent to the parole voters six out of ten right and once again all the people who voted in 92 still show up to now cast their vote, most of them for George W. Bush. that's twelve extra percentage points to President Bush's total that's forty nine percent of the vote and then seven to Clinton so. of the vote. So Clinton still wins, even if he's only, we're assuming, getting 40% of Perot voters, a much lower total than exit polls were showing. Exit polls were showing that the Perot voters virtually split between the two parties. You need more than 60% even. You need 66% of those Perot voters in the '92 election to vote for Bush in order to give him a second term, and they all need to show up. I don't think it's possible. If you look at where Perot voters voted for the Senate, they voted for Republican candidates 27 percent and Democratic Senate candidates 24 percent, according to exit polls, and in other cases did not even vote for anyone for Senate, indicating what they thought about those two parties. But you might say the election is not the popular vote. So whether Clinton gets 50.5 percent or George Bush gets 49, it doesn't matter. It's about the states. Well, this is true. Let's look at that. Perot's best states, Alaska, 28%. was a clear Bush state. Could not possibly give that to Clinton and certainly did not in this election. Kansas, 27% Perot vote. Could not hand that over to Clinton. Idaho, 27%. Utah, Wyoming, Texas, these were among his best states. States that Clinton had no serious chance of winning. Then there were some states on the other side that Bush had no serious chance of winning. Vermont, Massachusetts, Bush had no chance. Perot got some of his highest totals there. There are a few states, Maine, Colorado, and Missouri, three states where you could make the argument that Perot was decisive in winning. So that's the Electoral College. If you look at the states where Perot earned over 20% of the vote, his best states, 17 were won by Clinton, 14 by Bush. He did well in both places, not enough to turn the Electoral College to Clinton. Finally, let's talk about turnout, right? 104 million people vote in the 1992 election. Only 91 million had voted for Dukakis or Bush in the 1988 election. That's 13 million new voters. Now, while it's certainly possible that voters from the 1988 election who voted for Dukakis or who voted for Bush now voted for Perot in 92, you do have to explain all these new voters. I feel like the next election, 1996, that vote total drops to 98 million when the Perot campaign is not as well advertised and he's not participating in the debates. And it correlates with what he got in the popular vote.
1: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So there's a turnout factor. All the models that say that Perot handed Bush the election, have to rely on all of those Perot voters showing up when they were, we seem to see, new voters for that 1992 election. Let's summarize. In the two man race, Clinton was winning. You'd have to get 66% of Perot voters, an enormous amount, all to Bush in order for Perot to have handed the election to Clinton. The states he did best in were not significant in the Electoral College. And finally, turnout had increased leading to the possibility that these were new voters who may not have shown up if Perot wasn't running and could not be relied on to vote for one candidate or the other as they had not done it in 1988. For all of these reasons, I don't think you can argue that Perot handed the election to Clinton. No, George H.W. Bush was an incumbent president who lost the referendum on his presidency for a variety of reasons, which we should get into. On November 6, 2012, President Obama was reelected. GDP growth in the quarter of his election, the third quarter of 2012, was at 2%. That's bad. Nor was it better for the rest of the year. In the first quarter, it was 2%. In the second quarter, it was 1.3%. Anemic growth. During President Barack Obama's presidency, there were quarters as bad as negative 8.9%. Unemployment, in a widely watched pre-election release, was at 7.9%, just under 8%. It had been as high as 10% at times. George H.W. Bush, in contrast, first quarter, 1992, 4.5%. Second quarter, 1992, 4.3%. Third quarter, 1992, when the election occurs, 4.2%. Bureau of Economic Analysis numbers. Well, how about unemployment? Well, yes, unemployment was pretty high. During the election quarter, it was 7.4%. It never rose higher than 7.8% his entire presidency. President Barack Obama stays in the White House. George Bush leaves the White House in 1992. It seems, in a way, terribly unfair. But what we do know is we need to reevaluate how we commonly think about elections and pocketbooks. Right, we say, the pocketbook, we say the pocketbook factor is strong, and that if the economy is not good during election, the incumbent is going home. 2012 will change a lot of models, forecasts, and opinions on that. And believe me, presidential incumbents of the future will be hugging the memory of the 2012 election if the economy is not good during their term, just like they hug the memory now of that train ride that Harry Truman took in 1948. What's going on here? There'll have to be a lot of studies of it, but I have a couple of possible explanations. One will be perception. Yes, the economy's good or the economy's bad, but that's not what's important. It's not what an economist can show you on a blackboard. An economist can show you that 2% is bad or 4% is actually pretty good. It's what you feel. And in 1992, especially given that there was all this talk of restructuring at companies, when there was all this talk of layoffs were now going to be permanent, not temporary, when there was all this talk of the Japanese are taking our jobs, the trade deficit, when for the first time there were a high number of white-collar unemployed, the perception that America was losing ground, and a president who perhaps didn't run a very good campaign and said some negative things and made things look worse. In contrast, in 2012, you had a perception that even though very high unemployment, 7.9%, that things were not as bad as they had been. Maybe there's a perception of an active president, even if you don't agree with all the actions, an active president seeming to do something versus a president seeming to do nothing and just explain away a recession. That it's not necessarily just the economy, but it's how voters perceive the economy. A related factor, but one to look at, is the distance from the worst pain. When we look at how many quarters there were between the last quarter of negative GDP growth, the last time the economy actually went backwards in a quarter, and the election, we find that in the case of President Bush... That pain period was six-quarters away. In the case of President Obama, the last quarter of negative GDP growth was 13-quarters away. Perhaps it's the distance from the last pain period, and not the severity of the recession, that's important to voters. Perhaps in 1992, with only six-quarters from a bad recession as the election occurs, it's in voters' memories. And in 2012, though things aren't very good, that absolute pain period is a little bit farther from voters' memory. You can also look at partisanship. The recession in 1990-1991 occurred entirely during George H.W. Bush's presidency. He was a Republican. He was running against a Democrat in the 92 election, and voters responded. In the 2012 election, the actual financial crash in the beginning of the recession occurred during a Republican president. It reduced the blame that voters could apply to the Democrat, and it also hurt the Republican running in the election. So you could look at partisanship. It's possible that one of these explanations is right. It's possible that all of them are right to an extent. But one thing we know is that an incumbent with a, quote, worse economic record by traditional definitions has won the election. It's a close win, 51% to 48%. I mean, in history, that's one of your closer popular vote wins. It's actually a good popular vote win recently for Democrats because you have Carter at 50.5 and Clinton and not earning more than 43%, 49%. So decent win for the new normal of a very polarized country. It's a surprising election. And so something very different from 1992 went on. I hope you enjoyed looking at it. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you enjoy the program, please tell someone about it. It's so important. On our website, we have the best of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics 21 of the best podcast as seen by the number of times they're downloaded, number of times they're requested, etc. That's 999. Now, if that's not enough and you want All of the podcasts, or most of the podcasts that we've recorded since 2006. The archive is available $25.99. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com Thanks for listening.